We're reading Genesis chapter 16 um, on page 11 before we read. God, thank you that you've given us your word. And please open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to understand it. And, um, yeah, prepare us to be transformed as we, as we hear from you. Amen. So the whole of chapter 16. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne him children. She owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps I can have children by her. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan ten years. He slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she realized that she was pregnant, she looked down on her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms and ever since she saw that she was pregnant, she's looked down on me. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, Here, your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, why have you come, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, You must go back to your mistress and submit to her mistreatment. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, You have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild ass. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will live at odds with all his brothers. So she named the Lord who spoke spoke to her, the God who sees. For she said, have I really seen here the one who sees me? That is why she named the spring a well of the living one who sees me. It is located between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son Hagar had. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar brought Ishmael to him. Uh, You're going to find it helpful to have that passage open. Uh, You're going to find it helpful to um, uh, have that outline there. Although I just want to say, if you're someone who likes to look at the outlining and work out, well, he's up to point three, so that means I've probably got about ten minutes left or whatever. Uh, I'm just going to let you know, I'm actually going to spend, I've rewritten the talk a little bit, I'm going to spend a lot more time on the first part of the talk, because I think there are some important issues we need to deal with as a church in there, and I'll probably go through the second part fairly quickly, so if that's the way you work things out, just keep that in mind. I don't know whether you're, I don't know how long, if you're, if you're a Christian, I don't know how long you've been a Christian, uh, but if you've been a Christian for a while, I don't know whether you've had this same experience that I've had, where you just, you go, God, I, I know that you're sovereign, I know that you control the whole world, but can I just give you some advice on how to run things? 
right? You seem to be missing a few things here, God. So let me, you know, you know what I mean? Like, I'm sitting there kind of going, especially you look around today, right? I'm sitting here going, I, I feel like for the last four years, I had poured so much of my life and energy into building this church. And I'm looking around going, what do I need to do to get this building filled? You know, it's just that sense of, God, you could do this. Why don't you just do it? Why don't you just kind of do something to make this happen? Do you ever have that experience where you're, you're kind of going, God, I, I just want to fix what is going wrong in my life? You know, and, and it may be that you, you see a possible solution. And you sit there and go, you know, God, if, 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 if that guy would just ask me out, you know, then I could have the relationship. Or if that job just happened, then, then that, you know, that would solve all of my problems. Or if, if that relationship just got resolved, you, you could do that. Why don't, why don't you just do that? Why don't you, why don't you just fix things? And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I also want to say maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe you're, you're sitting there going, I don't understand what the Christian faith has for me. Um, how does God actually fix things? And uh, I want to say that today is actually something that we, we need to look at if that's, that's where you're at. Uh, because when we try and shortcut God's plans, we tend to fall into problems. And that's exactly what's happened here is that... Um, People have tried to shortcut God's plans and it's ended in disaster. But the other side of it is, so that's one side, but the other side is when we shortcut God's plan, what does he do? Does he, does he give us judgment as we deserve? Does he just go, well, you know, you've taken it off, off my hand, so it's all up to you now? What does he do? We'll come back to that. But let me pray that God will help us to understand that and we'll, uh, we'll get, a bit of our, get our bearings a little bit. Father, we want to pray now that we sometimes think that we can run the, the, our lives, your universe, your world better than you can. We're sorry. We pray that as we look at people who have tried to run lives their own way and have failed, that you'll help us through this talk, through what you are saying to us, to take some time to look at our own hearts and our own lives where we have got this wrong. And we pray that you will help us uh, that you'll give us wisdom, that you help me to speak your words faithfully and truthfully, as I ought. But I pray that each one of us, your spirit will be hard at work in each one of us right here today in helping us know you better and love you more, but also know our own hearts as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, previously, I always want to say previously in Survivor, because I watched a lot of Survivor, that, you know, I can't do the Jeff Probst thing. So previously in Genesis, uh, a guy called Abram has been given some promises. Just to give you some perspective on that, these promises still affect half of the population that is alive on the planet today, right? Jews, Christians, Muslims, who comprise of half the population, they all look to Abram and the promises that he has been given for their, their, their background. And this affects everything that happens in the Middle East. So uh, most of the Arab world will see that their, uh, their great descendant, their great ancestor is Ishmael, uh, one of the sons of um, Abram. And the Jews see their great descendant as Isaac, the half-brother of Ishmael. So, you know, that's why there's a lot of tension that has gone on there. Uh, Abram has been given promises of uh, blessing, of land, of descendants, that he would become the father of nations. Uh, he travelled from where he was to the land. We saw that. And he's had, you, you notice that his confidence has been going up and down through this whole thing, hasn't it? Uh, last week, 
uh, AJ gave us that very helpful kind of diagram where, yeah, sometimes God, I mean, he always trusted God, but his confidence, sometimes it was high, sometimes it was low. Um, there was a point early on in chapter 12 where his confidence was quite low, and uh, he and his wife, uh, Sarai, travelled to Egypt. And anyone remember what happened in Egypt? Because we're a small group, I'm going to ask you guys questions. What happened in Egypt? Pop quiz. Yep. And also kind of gets in trouble. So, yeah. So he, he's trying to, you know, go, I'm not going to... Yeah, so he sort of says to Sarah, don't say you're my wife, say you're my sister. She almost... Well, we don't know whether she ends up... With, she ends up in bed with Pharaoh or whether, you know... All we know is that she and Pharaoh, uh, it was an awkward relationship. Um, and then the, the last thing that we want to notice is that when we get to this chapter, they have been in the land for 10 years... Sarah hasn't had any kids, okay? So that's she's going, God's promised us kids. We don't have any kids. And this is where we get to. And Sarah sees this as a problem, and then she, this is where she starts to shortcut God's plans. So jump with me, chapter 16, verse 1. Abram's uh, wife, Sarai, had not borne him any children. Uh, she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, uh, "'Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children,' Go to my slave and perhaps uh, I can have, a ch- uh, have children by her. And Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Sorry, if, you, if I keep convu- going between Abram and Abraham and Sarai and Sarah, it's because their names get changed in the next chapter and just go with me on that one. Um, Abram's wife, Sarah, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. Uh, this happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. She slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. And when she realized that she was pregnant, she looked down on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. Put my slave in your arms. And ever since she saw that she was pregnant, she has looked down on me. May the Lord judge between me and you. Let's just start there, right? Uh, I don't have... uh, I don't have any kids. So, hey, Abram, here's a good idea. Take my slave and... um, what we'll do is, uh, if you get her pregnant, that'll solve all of our problems. Uh, what they actually really needed to do was, rather than, they didn't need a slave, what they actually needed was patience and prayer. And we're going to come back to that at the end. All right? But all of them failed here at some point along the way. Let's have a look at their failures. Right? First person we've got is Abram. Abram fails. You notice this? Uh, Sarai offers Abram an Egyptian woman. Now, there is, we're only 16 chapters into the Bible, right? We're not even a long way into the Bible. We're only 16 chapters in. Uh, Abram's wife comes to him and says, here, take my, my, my slave. And already in 16 chapters, you have so many precedents of this is not a good idea. So um, give me some examples. Where, where is we seen something like this happen and it hasn't worked out well? Take me this fruit. Yeah, back to Genesis 3. Take, take and eat this fruit. Hey, take this slave. And, you know, um, it, it, so Adam listens to the voice of his wife. Abram listens to the voice of his wife. Adam said, uh, Adam gets, here is this, this fruit. Abram gets, here is this slave girl. And then when everything goes wrong, it's everyone else's fault, but not theirs. You know, right? That's it. Where else has this not worked out? Come on, this is not a trick question. You don't get any gold stars. Uh, 
No, that's later. Okay, just think about this. You've got a married couple and an Egyptian. Where have you seen that before? Yeah, yeah, this is, this is back in chapter 12, right, isn't it? It's just, I mean, the roles are reversed a little bit, but, you know, Abram almost gives Sarah to Pharaoh, and now Sarah's giving Abram to Hagar. It's, it's kind of like the, the roles have been reversed here. But, you know, we're already 16 chapters in, and you can read it. This is not a good plan, and Abram should be sitting there going, what should have Abram done? Yeah, I said no. Uh, no, this is not a good plan. Why does he do this? Because he's thinking as a husband, she's upset, so happy wife, happy life, right? That's how it's going to work. So I'll just go along with whatever she says. And, you know, let's face it, there is a sort of, you know, okay, you want me to have sex with a younger woman? Okay, honey, if that's really what you want me to do. I'm sure there is something that in the whole process that he's kind of going, well, I guess that's okay. But, but there is a sense where I think in behind it all, he's saying, happy wife, happy life, I'll just go along with whatever she says. And husbands, Christian husbands, let me just talk to you guys for a minute. We fall into this. Right? We sit there and we go, I have to lay down my life for my wife. And so she wants me, she wants to go and do something. Rather than saying no, rather than causing conflict, I just I lay down my life for my wife and I just do whatever she wants to do. And so listening to your wife doesn't mean going along with everything that she says. It is we Christian men, husbands, we need to lead our wives. That's one thing, right? But you actually need to lead your wife into godliness. Because you cannot lead her. Or you could lead her in all sorts of... You could lead her into selfishness. You could lead her into the world revolves around you. Or you could lead her into the world revolves around her. Or you could lead her into the world revolves around your kids. But what you actually need to go, where am I actually leading my wife? Am I actually leading her into godliness? And um, when you are not actually confronting this... You're not being godly, you're being lazy. Uh, every so often, uh, I, I train uh, guys who are preaching, and uh, they come to me every so often and go, what do you do when you've got to say something where you know you're very guilty of this sin? I've never been able to answer that question, but I'm just saying, right now, I wish Audrey wasn't in the room, because I am incredibly guilty of this sin, and she and I have worked through this over a number of years. And so I really wish I could find... Use for you to leave, but I can't, so we'll just keep going. And, but what I do know is I understand the consequences when you get this wrong. It looks like going, at the time you're going, I just need to keep my wife happy, she's upset about something, I just need to calm her down, whatever it takes to calm her down, I will do that. But actually, it's, it, it, the ramifications, as you can see with Abram, as you can see with me, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's just laziness, and it actually... You, you try and justify it by saying, I'm going to be other person-centred, but actually, you're just being self-centred because you're, you want to avoid the conflict. Now, that's for the Christian husbands. You're sitting there and you're kind of going, for example, if you're a single girl, you're sitting there, oh, that's good, Pete's getting stuck into the husbands, I'm okay. No, this is not just for Christian husbands. This is for all of us. There are certain points where we need to, where someone says, hey, I want to go and do this, we need to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Or we need to say, actually, you know what? I don't think this is a good plan for you. You know, things like, I'm not going to go... Things like, hey, listen, thank you for the copy of the CD or the DVD or whatever, but I'm actually... I I don't agree with pirating as a Christian thing, and so I'm going to give it back to you. I'm going to say no. Or I'm... uh, Well, there's a whole bunch of other examples, but, but people sometimes come to me and say, hey, 
you need to talk to someone about, the, you know, you need to talk to this person about this issue, right? Because I'm the pastor and that's my job, right? Now, let me just say, I am the pastor. It is my job. I get that. The buck stops with me and I want to make sure that... I, and when I come and talk to you, and some of you know I have talked to you, some of you I have raised issues with you, I do it because I love you. But if you have thing, something, a, a problem, and you want to raise it with somebody else, you can do it yourself because I do it because I love you, and you should do it because you love the person. I am the pastor. You're their brother or sister in Christ. That actually means something. You can still do that. And so don't be Abram. Don't just sit back and go, well, if that's just what they want to do, I'm just going to sit back and do nothing. This is not just for husbands. It's not just for pastors. This is for all of us. Now, I realize sometimes it can be hard to have that conversation. I want to, know, I want to tell you we are actually preparing some material on how to have that conversation, how to do it well. Um, but it's not about keeping people happy. It's about keeping people Christ-like. You get the difference? Abram just wanted to keep his wife happy. He didn't want to keep her godly. Now, let me just go on a little side note here for a moment. I'm just going to walk over and turn that heater off. because it's okay. I'm, oh, thanks. Uh, Side note for a moment. Do you notice where this chapter comes? It caps, comes in chapter 16. Anyone excited about that? Okay, I've got a couple of people. Everyone's going, 16, great. Yeah, whatever. Okay, chapter 15 is the, one of the great... Uh, AJ took, brought us, took us through it last week. It is God's great covenant and promise to Abram. Chapter 17 is the sign of circumcision, the sign of God's great covenant. These are these two giant peaks in Genesis, in the life of Abram. And you get this huge failing right in the middle of it. Interesting, isn't it? But when you go back and you look at all of the different covenants in the Bible, there's Noah's covenant, David's covenant, uh, Moses' covenant. There are all these different covenants given to people and there are signs, and we're going to look at the signs next week, the signs that go along with these covenants. But at each point, there's also a need for grace. See, we, we look at the idea of a covenant. A covenant is like a contract. A contract says, this is what I'm going to do uh, when, when, when we have a contract. The, the difference between a covenant and a contract is uh, a contract comes with a, you know, the product disclosure statement, like, we're going to promise to do this, except for all these 16 different rules kind of thing. Covenant is, we're going to do this. We're done. And, and, the, and we, we look at a covenant, we go, God says, if we, if, I, if we do this, he will do that kind of thing. But a covenant actually is just God saying, I'm going to do this. We're done, that's it. Well, I'm going to do this. That's, that, that's the covenant. And so when he says, I'm going to give you the land, I'm going to give you the blessing, I'm going to give you this, and you don't deserve it because you look at what happens in chapter 16, it's out of grace, and yet he continues to go on with Abraham in chapter 17. Now, I want you to know that if you're not a Christian here, when we talk about the covenants, when we talk about God, when we talk about him coming and making agreements, he does it not because we deserve it, but because it is about God saving us because of our failure. So that's Abram. Uh, His sin is passivity. His sin is basically he does nothing when he should be doing something. And he does it twice. You notice that uh, Sarai comes to says, here, take Hagar. And then when things go bad, you see again, he does it in verse 6. Abram says to Sarai, um, she goes, hey, this is all your fault. And and his, his response is, 
Verse 6, here, uh, your slave is in your hands, do whatever you want with her. Then Sarah, I went away and mistreated her, so she ran away from us. Right? The two times Abram should have said, hey, you know what, I'm drawing the line here, Sarah, you, this is not a good thing. Both times, he fails. <coughs> Abram fails. But we also have Sarai failing. Is she a victim or is she a sinner here? What do you reckon? Bit of both, isn't she? She's a victim of Abram's passivity. Uh, we could say that she's a... Uh, so, you know, Abram should have said no and she should have, you know, gone, oh, yeah, that's right. But she, you also say she's a victim in that she's childless and that's not her fault. You know, she's been... She's now in her... Uh, she's about 10 years younger than Abram. So she's... Uh, Abram's, what, 86? So she'd be 75 or 76 around that. She's waiting 75 years. And you can imagine every time... There is a new baby born into the household, you know, one of the slaves or one of the relatives. There's this little cry, and everyone's really joyful, and she's probably joyful, but somewhere in her heart is just this little pain going, when's my turn? When am I going to get to to do this? And so she comes up with a plan. Now, if you're thinking, this sounds like a weird plan, uh, like I said, Abram comes from uh, a place called Ur, uh, basically where Babylon will be. And um, comes this, and, and there is a whole bunch of cultural stuff that goes along with this. This is one of the tablets from you know, Babylon uh, that kind of says, well, actually, this is probably where she got the idea from. And here we go with those names. Uh, if Gimlinu, the wife, bears children, and Sheminah, the husband, shall not take another wife. But if Gimlinu fails to bear children, Gimlinu will get for... Uh, Shemina, a woman from the Lulu com- country, that is a slave girl as a concubine. In that case, Gimlinu will herself have authority over the offspring. Right? So there's actually some legal precedent behind this. She's saying, oh yeah, back when we had this problem in Babylon, what happens if I couldn't have kids? Oh, this is a bit awkward because I'm a guy. Um, okay, we'll go with Audrey. If Audrey couldn't have kids, then what would happen is we'd go buy a slave girl and we'd have kids with her. It's a kind of a form of surrogacy, you know what I mean? And that's the way that they did it in Babylonian culture. And, and she's just going, hey, look, that's what we did back then. Let's do it here. Let me just say, it's not the same as current day surrogacy because it involves me, for example, having sex with a slave girl. That's actually breaking a covenant. There's a sign of a covenant that Audrey and I have and, and sex is a part of the sign of that. And so it's kind of breaking that covenant. So that's why it, it doesn't... It, it's surrogacy, but not the way we would want it to be. So she goes, okay, we're going to have... Um, uh, we're going to have a baby through uh, my slave girl. And uh, it works. Verse 4, she gets pregnant. Fantastic. But then she still suffers. Um, when you see verse 4, she looked down on her mistress. Actually, the, the, the phrase literally is she treated her mistress with contempt. She looked down on her. And that happens a couple of times. And so Sarah thinks, okay, we're good. I've got this girl's pregnant. I'm going to have a new baby. That's going to be fantastic. But the, it just creates more problems for her. And her sin, really, at this point of time, is in verse 5. Sarah said to Abram, you're responsible for my suffering. I put the slave girl in your arms, and ever since she uh, saw that she was pregnant, she's looked down on me, and made the Lord judge between you, me and you. And you can kind of see Abram going, this, this was your idea. I'm just doing what you told me to do, and... But she comes out, this is your fault. Isn't it easy for us to do that, though? Sin of blaming. 
It's, you know, it's incredible, isn't it, how we do that. We go, something happens and it's somebody else's fault. I remember, we, we do a marriage course, I remember one of the husbands, I, I remember him saying this, I'm going, yeah, I would so do this. But he said he was driving along and uh, he, the car pulled out and he almost had an accident and he said, I wanted to blame it on my wife and she was sitting right next to me. He's going, I'm driving the car, how could I blame it? He said, I found a way. And it's interesting how we, sin is really simple. There's usually never just us. There's usually someone else involved somewhere along the way. And it's easy to blame them for it. And you notice this when we, have our, when we, we, we look at people's motives. Um, we always are able to justify our own motives and we're always suspicious of others. When we're late to a meeting, you know, someone's late to a meeting. They're late to a meeting, it's because they don't care. When I'm late to a meeting, it's because I've got important things to do. You know what I mean? We always justify our own motives and we always are suspicious of other people's motives. We've got to be very careful to do that. We also need to be very careful that when it comes to blaming, we look to the example of Jesus. What did Jesus do on the cross? Did he have a right to blame people for being on the cross? Hey, Romans, you stuck me on the cross, this is your fault. Hey, Jews, you orchestrated this, uh, you, you, you did the conspiracy, this is your fault. Hey, disciples, where are you? You're supposed to be here with me. You're not here, this is your fault. Hey, Judas, you kissed me on the cheek, you identified me, you betrayed me, this is your fault. He had every right to blame everybody else for where he was. And what does he say from the cross? Father, forgive them. Now, you know, yeah, but that's, that's Jesus. I mean, he doesn't under, you, know, you don't understand my circumstances. I'm guessing your circumstances isn't the most painful crucifixion in the history of the universe. I want to ask you, are there areas of your life where you are blaming others and you actually need to take some responsibility? The areas of your life where it's very easy, I know there's things are wrong, you're suffering, and I don't want to excuse that, but the areas where, you know, and, and it may be that there are other people who are impacting in on that situation, but are there areas where you actually need to take some responsibility and go, I can't blame everybody for all of this. There is some point where I actually need to take some responsibility and go, you know what, I could do something here. Don't be Sarai. Don't blame everyone. And not take responsibility yourself. Now, we've got Hagar. Is Hagar a sinner or a victim? A bit of both again, isn't it? It's, it's easy to see her as the victim, isn't it? I mean, she is. She's a victim. Like, my guess is she was probably one of the slaves that got acquired by Abram in chapter 12. My guess is she was probably quite young at that point of time. So, you know, we're talking to someone about Kia's age. She let, you know... It's taken away from her family, taken away from everything she knows, taken to this thing. And then, on top of all of this, 10 years later, after doing all of this, she loses her family. Um, her, her mistress says, hey, I need you to go sleep with my husband, who's, you know, he's like in his 80s, so I'm not sure that's going to be a really attractive prospect. And then on top of that, she gets abused by Sarai. You see in verse 6 where, you know... Um, uh, she kind of gets so mistreated, she gets so mistreated that she runs away. She's a victim, but she's not guiltless either. She's a sinner too, isn't she? What's her sin? 
Could have said true. Possibly, yeah. Maybe she could Yeah. She treats her mistress with contempt. Now, I want to spend a little time on this because uh, contempt is when you treat people in authority, when you don't treat people in authority with respect. Australians, we live and breathe contempt. We do this naturally. We are just out. Now, I, let me just compare, because every so often, you know, I have a hard time, I, I give Americans a hard time. This is one point where Americans get it right, okay? And we are really not good at it. You, you look at the way we treat our political leaders. In Australia, basically, as soon as we have a political leader who's elected or, you know, is appointed to appointed a leadership, our media is sitting there counting the days before someone knocks them in the back, before they do something wrong. And we're the same. We sit there and go, you know, as soon as they're, they're in a... We're, we're, and they make a decision, we're out for blood. Now, in America, there will be people who will disagree with their leaders, but they will still treat them with respect. I, I've been watching some old episodes of The West Wing, some of you might be familiar, where, you know, it's, it's in the, uh, the White House, and there's this very interesting... There were a couple of very interesting scenes. One of them was... Uh, the Secret Service had to get the president to take a shower because he, you know, may have been contaminated with something. And they go, Mr. President, we'd like to go and take a shower. And he goes, and he just kind of goes off on this, I'm the president, I don't need to do this, this is just a drill, I'm not going to go and take a shower, this is really inconvenient. Uh, and, and the serv- Secret Service person just sits there and listens to them. Yep, yep. We understand, Mr. President. Now, if you could just sit this way into the shower, right? With respect, doesn't chuck a hissy fit back or anything, but still does his job well. And you can see this in, in uh, America. You know, people, no matter who they are, will still treat the president, Mr. President, with respect. In Australia, we don't do that. Um, now, I want to say, actually, this is something we can learn from. Do not treat our leaders with contempt. Partly because this is something that God doesn't want us to do. I mean, that should be enough. But practically speaking, if you have, you know, if you, you know, I know there's some people here who will disagree very strongly with some of the prime minister's um, uh, policies and that sort of thing. But if you disagree, respectfully disagreeing is actually going to bring about change more likely than contemptuous disagreement. Don't you want to bring about change if you wanted, if you disagree with them? Isn't that what you want? So, Haggai's sin is content. That's something we need to be looking at very carefully. It doesn't mean you have to agree. It doesn't mean respect. Respect for those who are in a leadership. And she might say, I don't agree with Sarah, you know, giving me Abram to sleep with, and now, I've got, now I'm pregnant, and, you know, I've got all the stuff that goes along with pregnancy, and, you know, and that's all her fault. And so I, but to still treat her mistress with respect. And especially, this is a woman who is not just her mistress, but a woman who can't have children. I mean, that is... That's got to be a very, very difficult thing. And in fact, um, I think what we're seeing here is what the writer of Proverbs says. Under, uh, sorry, un- under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes a king. A fool when he's filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband. And a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Things are just out of whack. And that's what's happened in this relationship. We're happy to be called the victim, but are we happy to be called the sinner as well? 
And her sin is not recognising the authorities over her, treating them with contempt. Now, how do we sum all this up? Well, there's a guy I'm not related to, just happens to have the last name, but he, I think, sums this up so well. The thing that shouts the loudest here in the story is that there is not an honourable character in the lot. All were ignoble. Abram was the worst. I mean, he's the only one, actually, just as a side thing. He's the only one I didn't ask whether he was a victim or a sinner, because he's not a victim in any of this, right? There is no victim thing here. He's the worst. He was pathetic, he was passive, impotent, uncaring of either woman. Neither woman had any compassion for the other. Sarai was worse, but you get the idea that, that Hagar would have done the same thing if she could. Notwithstanding, Hagar was the prime victim, and Sarai was a not-so-distant second. And all of them were trying to fix a problem their own way, not God's way. What they actually needed was patience, prayer, and confidence in God's um, promises. But God does do something about this situation. We can see the second part of this passage, uh, which I'll look at very briefly, is that um, Hagar then runs away. She runs back, and if you follow the geography, she's running back to Egypt. Right, she wants to go back home. Um, and she meets with God, and in verse 9, she says, The angel of the Lord said to her, You must go back to your mistress, and everything's going to be okay, and she's going to treat you with open arms. Is that what the passage says? The angel of the Lord said to her, You must go back to your mistress and submit to her mistreatment. Wow, they are hard words to hear, aren't they? You're pregnant, you're in the middle of the desert, you want to go back home, and God tells you, go back to mistreatment. Now, just as a side thing, just notice that suffering is not always a sign you've got things wrong. In our society, we get the idea that when you're suffering, things are out of whack because the ideal is comfort. And so anything that's not comfort must be wrong. And so we just go, suffering must be wrong. But actually, the Bible says there are cases where suffering is not something that you're not doing something wrong. It's, it's got to do other things. It, it may be a sign that you're being prepared for something. It may be a sign that you've got things to learn. It may be a sign that you are being made more like Jesus. It may be a sign that you're standing up for Jesus in a world that does not want you to. But she's sent back with a promise. Her son that was born out of failure and sin, but he is not to be dismissed, he is to be redeemed. Now, let me just quickly explain the idea of redemption. Now, you, you understand how, uh, you guys all know how redemption works because you've all used a voucher, right? On the back of a voucher, it says, what does it say? Redeemable. Redeemable. Yeah, it says, you know, so you hand this little piece of paper in and you get whatever it's promising kind of thing. There's an exchange that takes place. I give you the piece of paper, you give me an ice cream. I don't know what it is. But usually, I, I really like the idea of you get, I give you a piece of paper, you give me an ice cream. That's always going to work for me. But there are actually different types of redemption. What we're usually most familiar with is what's called individual redemption. So if you go back to Romans 6 and 7, it's the idea that we as individuals have been rescued from slavery to sin and to the law in chapter 6 and 7 of, of Romans. And we're brought under a new master, the slavery to Jesus and to righteousness. But there's also, in chapter 8, just me switch down for a second. In chapter 8, there's a thing where what's called cosmic redemption, which is not just where I get redeemed and you get redeemed as individuals, but the universe is being redeemed. Creation is waiting to be redeemed, and it's going from what it is now to something else, something new. It's looking forward to that. 
But in the midst of that, there is also a middle kind of thing called situational redemption, where God redeems a situation. And the most famous one of that is uh, later in Genesis, a guy called Joseph, he gets abused by his brothers, gets sold into slavery, but in doing so, rescues the, he, he literally saves the world. Right? And, and when they all go back and they look at this, he says, you know what, you tried to kill me because you, you, you wanted to do it for evil, but God redeemed the situation, he used it for good doesn't mean that the situation, you know, they've justified someone's sin, but God redeems it. And so the way that he redeems, and this is what's happening here, is God is redeeming the situation. He's saying, Ishmael wasn't part of the plan, but I'm going to give him promises because he's a son of Abram. He's not getting the promises, but he's giving some. And you'll notice, actually, if you look at it more clearly, you'll notice there's sort of almost a parody of the, the, the promises. He's getting some promises because he is being the situation is being redeemed. And the way this kind of works is you have this situation and then there's a failure and it ends up in the wrong way. So you've got this sort of situation, ends up in the wrong way. And yet God doesn't take it back and he doesn't just say, well, you failed, so that's it, it's all over. But he actually redeems it back into his way, which is a new thing. Does that make sense? We're going to come back to that a little more uh, detail next week. So... I want you to understand that redemption is when God acts in our failure. Sometimes it will be to redeem a situation. Sometimes it will be to redeem us from our sin. And one day it will be to redeem all of creation. Let me, um, let me just sum this up just in case you missed it with some four key lessons that we need to learn from this. And then I'll open up for questions. Number one, we are rarely just victims or just sinners. We're usually both. And we often recognise that we are the, you know, we're the victim. And so we want to, you know, we want justice and we want justification. But we also got to realise that we're the sinner as well and take responsibility for that. But sometimes we are hurt and that, that's part of being the victim as well. Now, when the gospel... What Jesus promised, we get both justification, dealing with our sin, and healing. They're the things that are promised, both of them. Because we are usually both the sinner and the victim. So, make sure you understand that we're usually both sinners and victims, and we need to recognise that. Secondly, some sins cannot be undone. All right? There was no point, I mean, at no point was God going to say, well, you know, you're now pregnant uh, with this kid, so we're going to undo the kid. I mean, you know, you, you can't undo that. Some sins just cannot be undone, but they can be redeemed. Ishmael wasn't going to get cut out of the picture, but he is given promises. Uh, interestingly enough, like I said, these promises are then taken on uh, by the Arab world, particularly by the Muslim world. They, they see their, their lineage going back to Ishmael, so it's actually quite important. But some sins just cannot be undone, and they do. the effects need to be dealt with. Um, thirdly, suffering is not always a sign of our own failure. Sometimes God calls us to do it. I, I think some of you need to hear that. You may be in situations where you're at work, you're in work situations which you don't like, or you're in um, uh, you know, other situations, living situations, I don't know where it is. Whatever situation you're in, you don't like it, and you're suffering, you go, I just need to get out of the situation. Maybe you need to stop and go, what can, 
is there something here that I should be doing that God wants me to do? If you're in that work situation, is it that there are people here who aren't going to hear the gospel any other way but through me or watching me? Suffering is not always a sign of our own failure. And then finally, the most important thing, rather, patience is important. Rather than shortcutting God and trying to solve problems, his problems our way, what we need to do is pop. Okay? We need patience, we need obedience, and we need prayer. Pop. Yeah, I kind of liked it. I thought of it this morning as I was driving here. Patience. We need to just keep in mind that God has given us promises, but he hasn't given us the sense of timing. Sometimes that will take a while. Keeping in mind, Abram didn't get a son for 10 years. In fact, he isn't going to get, he's going to get a son from Sarah. And that's going to be, how, how much longer do you reckon that's going to, he's going to have to wait? 15 years, right? It's going to be 25 years from the promise to fulfillment. Some of you aren't even that old. That's how long it's going to take. We need obedience. And this is where they got this wrong. If, you know, to be obedient to the, the covenant of marriage, to be obedient to what God wants us to do. That is what happens here. Now, again, I, I, coming back to the start, I'm going, I want to look at this room. I want this room filled. I, we could fill this room. It's very easy to fill the room, right? All we need to do is, you know, get a couple of girls doing, you know, pole dancing at the front, right? It, it would be easy to fill the room. But that's not being obedient. That is not glorifying God. And we need to pray. We pray. When we, when we have this situation, to turn to God. You know, who prays in this? I mean, in the first part, chapters 1 to 6, who prayed? No one did. No one sat there and went, hey God, we've got this problem. Can you help us with it? Everyone went, okay, we've got a problem. We'll sort it out. We don't turn in prayer. We turn to the next solution. And do you notice how we do that when it comes to like self-help books and things like that? We go, okay, I've got a problem here. So I'll go down to the self-help you know, thing and, and find, find a solution rather than go, our first step needs to be, hey, I need to go to God and go, hey, God, I need to spend some time in prayer. We need to pop. Patience, obedience, prayer. I'm going to pray because that's one of the four, three. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word to us. Thank you for what it teaches us about you. And our failures. Father, we thank you that we, you, you don't leave us in our failures, that you redeem us from the effects of our failures. You sometimes redeem us from the situation of our failures. And one day you will redeem us into a new world. But we have failed you. We do fail you. We do try and shortcut you. We do try and get what we want, not in your timing and not in your way. And we're sorry. And we ask that you'll forgive us. I pray that your spirit will be working in each one of us right now, convicting us of those things that we need to change. That he'll be speaking to us about those things that we need to address in the next 24, 48 hours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Questions, comments? Sonny. Uh, okay. This one? Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to, yep. There we are, got it. Yep. Is the redeemed 
Yep. It seems to me like that's a Yep. Yep. Yeah. Now it, it's it's juxtaposing two different ideas in the Bible, and so you're going to have to do that. So one idea is the idea of redemption, which is what I've got here, and that is to say, you know, you've got God's way and our way, and then God kind of working in our. Uh, you've got God, you know, re, if you like, reacting to our way to bring about a new way, kind of thing, but. How that works out, that's, that's one idea, but then you need to look at it another way, which is a plan, right? And so God kind of goes, well, I've got this plan worked out where we start with one thing and actually we work towards, and what happens in the end is actually something even greater than what we started with at the start, right? So you start with a garden, and you've got a guy, you know, that, and there's even a comment in chapter 2 where it says, um, it's a great garden, but there was no man, no man to work the ground, so you've got to have to create man. Or something. But at the end, you get this great kind of civilization, you get the city of God, and it's this wonderful kind of thing with the tree of life and God being glorified because he's, he's done it not just through creation, but he's, getting, he's glorified because he's both creator and redeemer. Right? Does that make sense? Um, so you've got to keep both of those, those kind of things in mind. Now, some people kind of go, well, hang on, how does that work if you know, God's working with our selfish ways in the midst of his ways? Um, I think it's got to do, does that justify our selfish ways? I think it's got to do with chess. I think that this is the best way I've worked out to explain it. Um, when I play chess, if I play chess with you, everyone know how to play chess, right? Okay, everyone understands it's a board game and you lose stuff, right? So if I, if I sit there and go, I have a plan to take your king, but it involves me losing my queen, uh, I, you take my queen and, and, and take it, and then I go, okay, well, I'll now take your king and I win. Does that mean that because I've allowed you to take my queen, that justifies, you know, well... I want my queen back because it was all part of my plan. No, there are certain rules, and God sets up rules. He sets up a moral universe, and he says, no, there are certain rules here. You've got to keep with those rules. And so that's why you end up with a wrong way and God's way, but God works his plan through that in the same way we might work our way through a chess game. Does that kind of work? Yeah. So despite the fact that we bring in our wrong way, yep. He is still working through, yeah. So he has his way, his his desired way, and he ha- and our way. But his desire, he is sovereign over the whole slide, so to speak, bringing about his purposes. Now, good news is um, uh, next week we're going to look at the sign of circumcision. We're going to have two weeks where we're going to be, you know, explaining the gospel quite clearly, to, so you can invite your friends. Then for the next six weeks we're going to have uh, because it's winter and people tend not to um, come along to church. We don't get a lot of visitors over winter. We're going to do a really long, hard series where you're going to work your brain on what the, the technical term is, eschatology. That is, how does God work out in time? So we, we've called the series a um, Time Traveler's Guide to the End of the Universe. Thank you, Nick. And, um, and we're going to be looking at that in more detail. And there's a whole talk just on how does, how does God work in history and how does he orchestrate history when he's dealing with rebels. So, yep. Hopefully I'll have that all sorted out by then. Any other questions? Good. I'm going to stop now and uh, Nick's going to pray for us.